Welcome back, imaginary listeners, and any non-imaginary listeners, or nannies, as the imaginaries like to call you. A little bit of passive-aggressive labeling there, if you ask me. Welcome to the second episode of Lucid or Bust, the podcast about my humble dream to one night, while I'm having a dream, look around and go, wait a minute... This ain't real. Busted. And have a lucid dream. Allow me to introduce myself. My name, well, my name for this podcast is Prodigal D. You know, when I first thought of that name, it sounded super cool inside my head. Like the D stands for dreamer, you know, with the idea being that one day, perhaps the L at the end of prodigal could multitask and stand for lucid. But last episode, when I said it aloud for the first time, this commercial voice popped up inside my head and said, ask your doctor about prodigal D. Okay, let's get this podcast rolling, shall we? Make yourselves comfortable. If you have any drugs on hand that makes time seem to go by faster, take them now. So, in the last episode, I believe I mentioned I had an epiphany that changed how I saw the last 40 years. Oh, for anyone just catching up, I spent the last 40 years trying to have a lucid dream. Or kind of trying. Now, during all those decades, I was always wishing to be able to do things in a lucid dream if I had one. And what I wished for changed as my life changed. It was almost like lucid dreaming created a wish map of my life. When I was a teenager, I wanted to wake up in a dream so I could have exciting science fiction adventures, especially after Star Wars came out. You know, I almost feel sorry for people watching Star Wars today. They will never have that pure thrill of experiencing Star Wars out of nowhere. I mean, except for Star Trek reruns and Lost in Space, we were living in a science fiction media desert and then boom, Star Wars. I can still feel the shockwaves reverberating through the collective nerd unconscious 39 years later. When I was in my 20s in art college, I wanted to have lucid dreams to be able to create meaningful art that everyone would want to buy and no one would be able to understand. And I wanted to hook up with David Bowie. In my 30s, I became a coffeehouse storyteller and people would say, you should write a book. Well, I was too busy going out every night to have time to think of an entire book. But wouldn't it be awesome if lucid dream characters would visit me every night and dictate the plots to best-selling novels while I slept, like they did for Robert Louis Stevenson when he wrote Treasure Island. In my 40s, I discovered the love of my life, and then the curse of my life showed up. It didn't have far to travel. It was already inside my brain. It was just a teeny, teeny part of my brain, or two teeny parts if you want to get technical. Yes, I'm talking about my amygdala, the part of your brain that keeps a record of all your dumb moves, like unplugging a lamp and sticking your finger in the electric socket to see if you can feel light coming out of it. Ooch! 
The next time you think about trying that, your amygdala jumps into action. Danger, Will Robinson, it cries. Danger, avoid, avoid. Well, not really. Amygdala can't do robot impersonations. They're just not that funny. But what they can do, even before you are aware that you're thinking about giving that electric socket another go, is dial up the fear settings a couple of notches in your brain so that when you look at that socket, you think, whoop, danger, Will Robinson, avoid. Now, this is all perfectly normal. In fact, I hope I'm not going to make anyone uncomfortable by saying this, but it's part of a grand plan that scientists in the know call intelligent design. See, we humans were specifically designed to learn how to avoid danger so we could survive long enough to reproduce and keep those humans coming so that future generations of bacteria would always have a nice place to live. Because when you're a little microbiota, nothing says welcome home like the inside of a human's colon. It's just cozier in there somehow. So being scared of scary things is normal, but please believe me when I tell you this, my amygdala takes it to the next level. Yes, I have an overachieving amygdala. Apparently, on the day I was born, my amygdala looked around and went, this whole planet is a fucking kill zone. I'd better get busy. And fear became my reality. Anytime something appeared even a little bit scary, like a teacher reading a story out loud in class where one of the characters is injured, my entire body would flood with ice cold dread. My limbs would become weak and feel disconnected. And weirdly, I would start getting these terrifying sense messages from my body that I was plummeting through space. You know that expression, it felt like the ground opened up under me? When my big sister took me to see Yellow Submarine and the blue meanies started being mean, it felt like the ground opened up under me. And once something scared me, it always scared me. Even thinking about it scared me. Well, at first, there was an easy solution to all this. Avoid anything scary. But I just never knew what was going to set the fear response off. I used to love flying. I always made sure to get a window seat, not over the wing, so I could spend the flight with my nose pressed against the glass. The thrill of the plane charging down the runway, gaining speed, and then that upward tilt, the acceleration, that slight increase in g-force as we broke free of the earth. It was the next best thing to being an astronaut. One time when I was a teenager, I actually saved up enough money to buy a round-trip ticket from Boston to New York just so I could fly. And then one day I was flying home from visiting my grandparents in Florida, and as my plane approached Logan, it banked just a little bit more steeply than normal, and I watched my cup of tea slide just a little bit across my tray, and I suddenly thought, I wish we had already landed, which I never think in an airplane. And the next time I took a plane, the moment we started accelerating down the runway, 
my body flooded with dread. As we took off, I felt myself start to fall. I knew I was seat belted into my seat, but I felt like I was plummeting through the air. That is not a sensation you want to be feeling in an airplane. It took all of my self-control and pride not to grab the nearest stewardess and beg her to land the plane. I hate flying now. I mean, if I have to, I can gut up and fly, but I've arranged my life so that I don't have to. I haven't flown in 13 years. Problem solved. And then I met the love of my life in the library. Yes, imaginary listeners, another book. Another book stumbled upon in the library that changed my life. You know, they really should give you a warning when they hand out library cards. So this book was called Sea Change, and it was about a guy sailing across the Atlantic Ocean in his own sailboat. And he was just a regular guy, not rich. In fact, he was pretty poor. Well, this caught my attention because I'd always thought the only people who could sail were rich people and the Kennedys. But it turns out anyone could do it. So I did a quick bit of research and found that there was a sailing club in Boston that gave lessons, so I signed up for sailing lessons. And the first time I got in a sailboat, oh, I was smitten. I loved it. It was beautiful. I couldn't believe how different everything looked from a sailboat. I mean, I'd seen Boston Harbor my entire life, but never like this, from the water. The author of the book, Peter Nichols, had written in this beautiful passage that the way you arrive at a location changes the reality of the place. Like, if you take an airplane to a tropical island, you are limited to experiencing that island the same way everyone else on the airplane is experiencing it. But if you got to that same island by traveling there on a sailboat, well, the people who arrived by plane might walk alongside you on the beach. They might talk to you. They might even be close enough to touch you. But you were walking someplace they could never see or even imagine. You, my friend, had sailed off the edge of mundane reality and were now walking on a mythical island. They looked out from the shore and saw only the tourist fairy coming to get them and shake them down with overpriced watered-down drinks. You looked out and saw mermaids dancing on the sea of dreams. Okay, that's not a direct quote from the book, but that's how it hit me. Sailboats were like the little hyperspace button on the Asteroids game. You could just pop out of reality and land somewhere else. So the week I learned to sail, I was taught the basics of boat handling, like how to tack and how to jive, and I learned all the cool nautical vernacular that went with those maneuvers, like when you tack, you cry out, hardily, which means duck. And when you jibe, you call out, jibe ho, which means duck. Basically, every time you change the direction of your boat, the sail, which is attached to a long, heavy wooden boom, comes sweeping across the boat, so duck. That entire week, the wind was blowing a steady four to six knots, so everything we did was just so easy breezy. 
When we tacked with the wind in front of us, the biggest danger we faced was losing momentum and coming to a standstill, which sailors call being in irons. And when we jibed with the wind behind us, I had only to pull in the tiller until the stern of the boat crossed the eye of the wind, and the wind would just slide around to the front of the sail, smooth as silk, and sweep it across the boat for me. Easy breezy. Jibing was definitely my favorite. At the end of the week, we all got our certificates. We were sailors now. And the next week, I and one of the other students, a banker named Phil, took out a Sonar 23 by ourselves, our first independent sail. But that day, it was blowing 25 knots. But it was blowing out of the harbor, the direction we were going, and we went fast. I had the tiller, so I pointed us out of the harbor, let out the sails, and we were flying. The wind was behind us. The tide was with us. These beautiful white-capped waves were racing out of the harbor alongside us. I kept thinking, I can't believe how fast we're going. But then I started thinking, I can't believe how far we're going because we had shot out of the harbor and now we were flying past Castle Island and Spectacle Island and coming up on Long Island and I thought, hmm, it's probably going to take us longer to get back because we'll be sailing against the wind. We should probably start heading back now. Hey Phil, jibe ho! I yanked in the tiller and the boat started to turn. And those 25 knots of wind, which had been muscling against the back of our sail, slid around and got hold of the front of the sail and whoosh, boom, spring. Okay, for those of you unfamiliar with sailing, those sound effects represent the sound of a sail attached to a heavy boom accelerating across 180 degrees of arc and colliding with the rigging so hard that the force of the impact traveled up the mast and almost yanked it off the boat. The boat crashed down on her ear, almost jettisoning us over the windward rail, then sprang back up and started rocking violently. And now that we weren't moving with the wind, we could feel the wind. It pummeled the boat into irons. The sails lost air and started flapping violently, a loud, terrifying sound. And the waves, angry waves now, got into the action and started slamming into our hull. Bam, bam, bam. Imaginary listeners, do I even need to tell you what was going on with me? You got it ice-cold dread, weak limbs, I'm falling, nothing is holding me up. Oh, and my whole body started shaking. That was a new one. <laughs> Yay! I dropped the tiller and I said to Phil, your turn. It was a long sail back. We were tacking against the wind. Actually, Phil was tacking. I was mainly cowering. Cowering ballast, that was me. The entire time back, as I clung to the rail, I kept gibbering inside my mind, just get me back to dry land and I swear I will never set foot in a boat again, ever. But there was a problem with that plan. I didn't realize it until we had gotten back in 
de-rigged the boat, and I was standing safely on dry land. You know how the Buddhists are always saying, desire is a buzzkill. Well, okay, they don't actually say it like that. Or maybe some of them do, inside their heads, like maybe the newbie Buddhists do. Anyway, however they said it, they must have been talking about me on that dock, looking at that sailboat, because all I desired to do was get back in the boat and go sailing again. I know it sounds crazy, imaginary listeners. I was still shaking with fear, but it didn't change how I felt about sailing. I still loved sailing, helplessly. Before I had gotten scared, I was having so much fun, and I had felt so, so free. And now that I was safely on land and remembering what happened after the jibe from hell, when we seemed to get almost yanked out of our safe, familiar, controlled reality and thrown into this strange, dangerous dimension filled with angry waves and violent winds and loud, flappy sails and nothing stayed still and all the familiar rules of reality were topsy-turvy, in my memory of that, I saw what my fear had at the time made me miss. It was beautiful out there, wild, untamable, beautiful. It was so different from mundane reality. I wanted to go back, but what I desired I could not have because suddenly that sailboat and every sailboat on the planet, it would turn out, had become encased in an invisible, impenetrable force field of fear. Those Buddhists were right. Desire was a buzzkill. So I did the only thing I could do. I let desire go. No, I did not. Hello, we're talking about the love of my life here, imaginary listeners. Are you guys even paying attention? Now, I remembered reading in Stephen LeBurge's book, yes, we're getting back to lucid dreaming, in his book, Exploring the World of Lucid Dreaming, about something called Rehearsal for Life, or Practice for Life, where you could practice something inside a lucid dream, like golfing or tennis, and you'd actually be better at it after you woke up. Could I practice not being afraid of sailing in a dream? Could lucid dreaming get me back in a sailboat? So I reread Stephen's book, and once again, I tried, tried, tried to do all the things that rhymed with Ild, but not for long enough, apparently. After about a month, I thought, yep, I can't lucid dream, and I gave up. But even without a lucid dream intervention, I still couldn't let sailing go. Every time I saw a sailboat, oh, it would tug at my heart like the full moon and simultaneously make me want a projectile vomit with fear. Well, it took me years, years of epic, humiliating failures, but we can just fast forward past that part. And then finally, I got back in a boat. Only this time, instead of the harbor, it was the river. It was a program in Boston called Community Boating, nice small boats on a nice small river, and I made a determination within myself that I was going to show up on the first day of sailing, no matter how scared I was, I was doing it 
End of story. So, on the first day of sailing, it was blowing 25 knots with 30 knot gusts. And I found out later that the only reason they were open was because it was the first day and they didn't even think anybody would show up. I showed up. So I was waiting at the edge of the dock and I am not making this up. There was a boat resting in a wooden cradle waiting for repairs. This gust of wind came by that was so strong it lifted the boat out of the cradle and threw it in the water and I thought, I'm out of here. And just at that moment, I heard my name over the loudspeaker. Well, show up at the boathouse for a sailing lesson. Shit, I had to do it. So my instructor turned out to be one of these old salts that hang out at the boathouse and give lessons for free because they just love sailing so much. And we got in the boat and he said, listen, we're not going to try to jibe in weather like this. And I'm thinking, oh, do tell. So I'm sitting in the boat looking like a deer in headlights and he has the tiller and we go out a little bit and then he says, all right, why don't you take the tiller and show me what you can do? I'm so scared I can't even get enough air in my lungs to talk and I say in this little ghost voice, I can't. And he had the most wonderful response. He laughed but not at me, at the situation. He said, of course you don't want to. It's nuts out here. We should be at Starbucks. Listen, anytime you're planning on going sailing and it's blowing like this, go to Starbucks. Sailing should be fun. And somehow when he put it like that, it was doable. Like I had some say in the matter. I could sail or I could go to Starbucks. And the next day, I showed up again and it definitely was not blowing 25 knots and I got through a lesson and the day after that and the day after that and then a year went by and I went back to Boston Harbor and joined a sailing club in the Navy Yard where you could take boats out as often as you want from May through October and then a few years after that I did a little crewing for other people's boats and I got my skills to the point where I could rig up a Rhodes 19 by myself and take her out to Nix's meet and back. A nice three-hour sail. So, if this was a fairy tale, this would be the part where I say, and she sailed happily ever after. But this is not a fairy tale. This is me and my overachieving amygdala here, and I sailed scaredily ever after. Because the reality is, it never got any easier. Every single time I prepared to go out sailing, I'd walk around all morning with a sense of dread like I was preparing to go for a root canal without anesthesia. To work up my nerve, I would attempt to build these architectures of confident thoughts inside my head. I imagined these thoughts to be a building, a fear-proof building that I could shelter inside of while I sailed. The thoughts would be, Fear isn't real, silly. Fear is just a fraud reality. You want to know what the real reality is? You. Sailing with confidence. So get out there and jibe and love it. But more times than I care to recount, the moment I cast off and the wind grabbed the sails and the boat would start to heal, my body would flood with dread and 
all my anti-fear architecture would collapse inside my head and I'd go, no, how did I trick myself into going out here again? What was I thinking? Fear isn't a fraud reality. Fear is the only reality. But the good news here is I finally get it. I finally get it and I will never go sailing again. And I would sail again. But sometimes the worst part was just getting myself out there. I'd clear the mooring field and raise the jib. I had a system and I'd trim the sails and suddenly my fear would fall away. It was like fear was the training wheels of exhilaration and I would be sailing without fear, skipping over the waves on a brisk day, ghosting over Sculpin Ledge on a soft day, racing in with the tide through Nubble Channel on a perfect day, and my entire being would flood with this exquisite combination of euphoria and gratitude. Every color would become more intense, the sky a blue you never saw on land, like the sky was going, Oh, you made it out here in a sailboat? Well, in that case, we're breaking out the good blue. And every detail around me would be so clear, so present, so there. And if fear is ice-cold dread, if fear is plummeting through space, what did this feel like? like carbonated helium, like floating and sparkling at the same time. I would be so happy to be here. I would be so grateful to be here, so grateful to the world for being so beautiful and so grateful to mine own perseverance for getting me here. It was worth everything, everything I put myself through to get here because now I understood. This is the real reality. That other reality, the one where I thought I was scared, that was the fraud reality. And now that I finally really, really understand, I am free. And the next time I went sailing, I would be right back to square one. Well, this went on for years. For years, I would force my dread-filled body to get out to the Navy Yard and take out a boat, sometimes three times a week. I was self-employed so I could flex my hours. And it never got any easier. No matter how much my skill levels increased, I never got any less terrified at the thought of going sailing. In fact, and it really makes me sad to say this, but in all those years of sailing, the happiest day of the year for me was the last day the sailing club was opened for the season because I would be safe. Now, perhaps you are thinking, hey, prodigal D, what's going on here? I mean, why put yourself through this year after year when you so clearly are never going to make any progress? Well, because there's this one fundamental, non-negotiable law of reality. Imaginary listeners, I know I go on and on and on. I know this, but please hear this and know that it is true. Everything is 
better on a sailboat? Have you ever stood on a wharf and watched a beautiful harbor sunset? I guarantee you that sunset is ten times more beautiful on a sailboat. Have you ever, on a chill fall day, poured yourself a piping hot cup of coffee from a thermos to warm your bones? I bet you thought that coffee was pretty good, right? Well, that coffee is nothing compared to the cup of coffee you just poured from a thermos on a sailboat that is hove to next to Navigational Boy number four. And as you sip your coffee, you listen to Nav 4's bell clanging mournfully across the waves. And it is such a sad sound. It is the saddest sound you've ever heard heard. It's like Nav 4 feels responsible for every shipwreck that ever was. I tried to warn them. I tried to warn them, but they didn't listen to my bell, and now they're at the bottom. It's a sound so sad. It hits you like a blue song. Like, you know the way a blue song just kind of rolls at you like a wave in one particular wave pattern, and then it meets the wave of your own sadness, which is in another wave pattern, and then the two patterns come together and form this third pattern that somehow, against all laws of emotional physics, lifts you up. That is the best cup of coffee you are ever going to have in your life. And that's why Fear doesn't get to have this one. Fear cannot have sailing. Fear shall not win. So fear won. To my credit, I held out for 10 years. 10 years, you know? But fear was always going to win. Fear is nature, and nature always wins. I thought I was going to wear down fear. No, fear wore me down. The last summer I went sailing, I only went out two times the entire summer. The Great Recession had happened. I'd had to double my workload to keep up. And I just didn't have the energy to put myself through it anymore. And so I let sailing go for real. So when I heard Lucid Sage's beautiful voice coming out of my iPad mini, telling me about the global tribe of lucid dreamers, regular people who had figured out how to hack their way into their own dreams. Young people are so good at hacking. And I was practically going ballistic with excitement. There was one thought that kept running in the back of my mind. If I can't get into a real sailboat, how about a dream boat? How about rigging up a lucid sailboat and taking her out for a spin on the sea of dreams. Yeah, not as a rehearsal for life. Those lucid dream hackers don't fly in their dreams because they think it's going to make their wings more buff when they're awake. They do it because, if not in a lucid dream, where else? It's like the final destination on my wish map. I don't need to fly in my dreams or have sex with a movie star. I'm not interested in dialing into the collective wisdom of the cosmos. Enlightenment isn't even a good fit for me. I'm too attached to earthly delights, and I am not ashamed to say it. 
Seriously, if a Tibetan Buddhist Obi-Wan Kenobi angel descended down from Bardo Central Control and said, you can have a choice between enlightenment or a five-year all-paid subscription to HBO Go, I mean, come on, Game of Thrones Season 6 is about to start. And get this, imaginary minions, the show has finally overtaken the books. Now, I started out as a pure book reader. I put in the time. I can't let some show watcher step in at the last minute like some song of fire and nice Rosie Ruiz and find out that L plus R equals J before I do. I have to watch the show. Yeah, let's just put a pin in enlightenment for now and go sailing. What's that you say, imaginary listeners? Oh yeah, the epiphany, right? So, after I made my declaration, lucid or bust, no giving up after just a month, I jumped right into internet research and right away I found a new technique that rhymed with ILD called filed or finger-induced lucid dream, which is not dirty like it sounds. It's an easy technique for a beginner to do. If you wake up in the middle of the night, which I do, as you're drifting back to sleep, you move your middle and pointer finger like you're typing on an invisible keyboard but not hard enough to actually press the keys. A subtle movement, more an intention than an actual movement, and supposedly this will draw you into a lucid dream. So, the next night, I woke up in the middle of the night and I thought, ooh, time to try filed. And so I started moving my fingers in the prescribed manner and my body flooded with ice cold dread. What? And then the next day I was on a website that sold supplements. Yes, I'm gonna try supplements. I'm gonna try everything. And as I moved my cursor over the add to cart button, yeah, ice, cold, dread, and I'm falling and all that. Well, what's going on here? This is how I feel when I'm afraid of something that's already happened to me. But how could I be feeling that now? I've never had a lucid dream, right? Right? And then my brain became like a search program going over every part of my life looking for a lucid dream I might have missed. Any lucid dreams in my 50s? No. In my 40s? No. In my 30s? My 20s? My teens? No, no, no. Okay, how about younger than 10? No. How about younger than 5? Bing, bing, bing. Okay, I didn't suddenly remember a lucid dream I had when I was 3 years old because I will never forget that night. But I'd always thought of it as the night I woke up and started hallucinating. Here's what happened. I was asleep in my bed, a bed I was very proud of because it was the big girl bed. My little sister was in the crib next to me and I just graduated to the big girl bed. It was summer, the window was open, and I was peacefully asleep when I woke up to the sound of my name being called from outside the window. And I immediately started swooning with happiness because I knew that voice. It was the voice of the moon. The moon knew my name. The moon knew me. The moon called to me, come to me, come to me. I will. Come to me, 
come to me. I sat up in bed. I'm coming. And then suddenly I noticed a distortion at the edge of the sound of the voice, but I didn't want to be aware of it because I was melting with happiness. I tried not to know, but suddenly I knew. Suddenly I had the terrible knowledge. There was another voice, a clever voice that sounded almost like the voice of the moon, the voice of the witch. The witch was outside my window calling me by name. The shock of it hit me like a jolt of fear. In fact, the only way I can accurately describe it is I was electrocuted by fear. When I came to, I was thrashing in my bed and shrieking my head off. Only I'd lost control of my body, so it was like I was watching my body scream. And then my little sister woke up and started crying, and then my father rushed in. What is it? What is it? The witch is pretending to be the moon. And my father laughed. Oh, it was only a dream. And that was the first time I had ever experienced a grown-up being wrong, because it wasn't a dream. I knew what dreams were. I was very proud of myself because I had recently figured out the difference between dreams and real life. In dreams, things were always jumping around. You were somewhere else. You were someone else. Real life stayed still. I was myself. I was in my bedroom. This was real. A real witch knew my name. And for years, I saw it like that. And then I started thinking that I must have been hallucinating. Maybe I'd had a high fever. My grandmother told me she once had scarlet fever and hallucinated that little devils were dancing on her stomach. So, yeah, it was probably an hallucination. But now I'm thinking, what if my father had been right all along? What if it was a dream, a lucid dream? And once scared of a lucid dream, always scared of a lucid dream. That's how my overachieving amygdala operates. So that's kind of the deal, imaginary listeners. With all my heart, I desire a lucid dream. But the cowardly chemistry in mine own brain won't let me have one. Fucking Buddhists, right again. Well, imaginary listeners, once again, I have run out of time before I have run out of things I really wanted to say to you. I didn't even have time to talk about the elephant in the room. Or, if you want to get technical, the elephant in the dream journal. Boy, I didn't see that one coming. You guys are amazing listeners, the best. I really should be paying you more, I know, but, well, you shoulda, coulda, woulda joined that imaginary union. Anyway, I will see all of you back in 14 days because game on, fear, game on. I am still lucid or bust.